Today on the Arts Report, the late Babs Chula, a new season of arts at the Colch, dance legend Grant Stratty, and the film Leslie, My Name is Evil. Hello, and welcome to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM and streaming on the web at www.citr.ca. It is May the 19th, 2010, and I'm your host, Adam Janusz. On today's show, the Arts, Arts Report contributor Nick Panu's conversation with the late Babs Chula, who recently passed away from cancer. The Kulch announces its 2010-2011 season today. Executive Director Heather Redfern will tell us all about it. The legendary choreographer Grant Stratty is being honored at the Firehall Arts Center tonight, and we'll hear what he thinks of that. And a new film loosely based on the murderous Manson cult opens in Vancouver on Friday. It's called Leslie, My Name is Evil, and we'll talk to director Reginald Harkema. Uh, but first, um, maybe a little commercial break? Yeah, we'll be right back. The Calgary Folk Music Festival, a dreamlike balance of urban and bucolic, friendly and far out, super fly and earthy. Pioneering musical godfathers and grandmothers, plus rebels, romantics, and revolutionaries of the current decade. July 22nd to 25th at Princes Island Park. Let the music take you around the world. The Calgary Folk Music Festival. Visit calgaryfolkfest.com. All right. Now, uh, before we start with uh, the show, I have to tell you about an amazing experience I had over the weekend. A few weeks ago, I told you about Red Bastard coming to town and doing a clown workshop. Red Bastard, a.k.a. Eric Davis, is a bouffant clown artist, performer, provocateur. What? One second. Sorry, I had to close the door there. To people who don't know what Davis does, it's uh, hard to explain. It's a combination of a one-man show, a stand-up routine, an improv show, with a sprinkle of sports game mascot audience interaction, and a pinch of sadism. Basically, it's a very big, outrageous character who comes out and talks to the audience, provokes them, plays games with them, mocks them, mocks himself, etc., etc. He's been known to make one special member of the audience sing into his mouth, literally inside his mouth. Like I said, it's hard to explain. Anyway, before Red Bastard did a benefit performance for the GVPTA on Monday, that's the Greater Vancouver Professional Theatre Alliance, he did a workshop for anyone who wanted to get in touch with their inner clown, their inner bastard. And I went for it. With about a dozen other intrepid students, I put pantyhose stuffed with newspaper on my head, created a big, outrageous character body, and ran around the room. And learn about thinking out loud at a rapid-fire pace, being instinctual, and vulgar, and outrageous, and whatever else pops into your head. The idea being that a bouffant is like an outcast of society. Everything society deems inappropriate or ugly. And then relishing being that creature. Celebrating being an ugly outcast. And uh, it was pretty fantastic. I have to tell you. And the best part was we got to see Eric do his show after our intense two-day workshop. We got to watch him put together all the elements he was trying to instill in us one by one. 
uh, in the workshop. And he really delivered. He danced and sang and spit up on the stage. He had us singing, had us yell out, the, had us yell out the most vulgar thing that we could think of, had us switching seats with strangers, and had us share our childhood dream. He also made us laugh at him and each other. He made fun of us, accused us of patronizing him, belittled us, rubbed his huge round butt in our faces, and occasionally went too far, making us cringe and lower our heads in disgust. But at the end, to reward us for all that we had done and what and to reward us for what we had put up with, he stripped down to his birthday suit. Yep, stripped completely naked in front of everyone and offered a sincere apology if he offended anyone. He then smiled, a sarcastic, guilty, scoundrelly grimace, and pranced off the stage. When it was over, I was speechless. I felt kind of bonded, though, with my fellow audience members, kind of electrified, as though I achieved something, as though I survived something, together with everyone else. It was live theater at its finest. You can't get that watching Avatar. Sorry. Yes, even in 3D, it's not the same. So I thank Eric Davis and all my fellow workshoppers for a great weekend and a great show, and I hope Red Bastard returns to Vancouver soon. All right, on with the show and something decidedly not great. The passing of local actor Babs Chula. It is with great sadness that we announce the passing of beloved Vancouver actor Babs Chula, reads a statement from babschula.org. Ms. Chula was a multiple award-winning actor of stage, screen, and television. She has been fighting two forms of cancer since 2002, and on May 7, 2010, she passed away at home, surrounded by her family. Ms. Chula was born in Springfield, Massachusetts, the eldest daughter of an amateur actress. She went on to a singing career with the band Street Hearts and starred in the Vancouver Opera's Three Penny Opera. She had regular and leading roles in Vancouver-shot television series like Madison, the Comish, Cold Squad, and These Arms of Mine, which netted her a Gemini Award. The queen of independent film, her credits include Bruce Sweeney's Dirty Live Bait, The La- and Last Wedding, Ben Ratner's Moving Malcolm, and Carl Bassai's Mothers and Daughters, which won her a Leo Award, and Fathers and Sons, which is yet to be released, as well as the Canadian classic My American Cousin. Miss Chula was first diagnosed with breast cancer in 2002, and in 2005 was diagnosed with a rare form of blood cancer. She beat the breast cancer for several years, but in 2008 learned that it had returned. At that time, a group of her friends formed the Babs Chula Lifeline for Artists Society, ostensibly to help with Babs' medical expenses, but it was always her wish that the society become her legacy. Recently, the society has undergone changes to allow it to support other artists. Ms. Chula continued to work during her cancer treatment, which encompassed traditional and alternative healing methods. She recently returned from an Ayurvedic healing center in India, where she spent six weeks with her friend, filmmaker Ann Wheeler, who filmed the process for an upcoming documentary about Babs' journey. The Arts Report's Nick Panu interviewed Babs Chula before she passed away. diagnosed with 
you know, well, cancer, cancer, you know, has a, a huge power behind it. But even diagnosed with something that's going to, you know, change your life. And in that moment when, when uh, you know, someone who knows tells you that uh, you're never going to be the same again, you know, it's, um, it's terrifying. Right now we're on the line and have this pleasure of speaking to none other than Babs Chula, Gemini Award winner from 2001, won BC Motion Pictures Association Aaliyah Award in 1996, Nico Theodeski's 1993 Genie Award, and honored in 1995 by Vancouver's Women in Film and Video, and also two theater jesse awards how are you doing and thanks for taking the time to do this interview you're very welcome and i'm doing very well how are you good good uh many many achievements many awards and that's just kind of that's the condensed version uh many accolades in your career well you know what nick i'm old i think it's because i'm old <laughs> you know what i mean like if you end up if you end up sticking it out in this industry especially as a woman you know, and, 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 you know, you get to be someplace in the, uh, in the upper two digits, you know, you, you just, yeah, you win awards because you, you, you know, you, you must, I mean, they don't have awards for like sticking it out the longest, but in some ways, you know, you know, it just gets really populated, you know, less and less populated up here as you get older and, and, you know, your, your competition is, it's formidable, but uh, but it isn't it isn't the same as when you're 22 years old and every other uh, young woman in the world wants to be an actress. You know, like I'm not I'm not um, <laughs> I'm not trivializing my success. I, I and, and you know I mean I'm very proud of, of 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 the attention that I've been given and and the accolades. I'm very very proud. You know, but I also think that. <laughs> Uh, in some ways, you know, you just you get you get awards for just for just not quitting. You know, it's pretty it's a pretty rough business. You've uh, contributed a lot to the local scene, uh, mentoring uh, young actors and uh, helping out the independent film community. Would you say your formative years were were during the '60s? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I'm definitely a child of the '60s. That's what you would say about me. <laughs> and still, I think you know. And do you think a lot of your your creative mindset and, and your approach to be, being versatile as an artist, like you you, you sing, you, you've done uh, you did uh, voiceovers and and uh, acting, and then directing and script writing. Do you think that that open mindedness you have as an artist to, to be versatile comes a, a lot from the mindset you had uh, during those formative years of the sixties? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um... You know, uh, that's a really interesting question because I work a lot now in my present life with young actors, uh, you know, young directors and, you know, with young people that are breaking into this business. And they're, they're actually, when I think about it, because you've asked me this question, um, and I haven't really thought about it before, but I, I think that there wasn't um, a kind of expansive value in those days that uh, that maybe has faded a bit um, that really did um, allow us and we also gave ourselves permission to 
to try a lot of things and to, and, to, and we had the, the courage to try stuff without uh, um, without you know a lot of fear and I, I, I don't I don't quite know why that was except that there was a general permissiveness in the culture at that time because now I find that um, I find most of the young actors I work with and young directors are much more timid and much less willing to take chances and risks, you know. So maybe it does have something to do with that, and that's a really interesting question because I've never really thought about it that way. When, when I was young, the motivation was the work. We, I, I think that um, generally everybody would, say, would have said that at the time. I don't think that there was the same cult of celebrity at that time that there is now. So it wasn't about being a star. And it wasn't about um, you know becoming famous or be getting rich and making a lot of money. And, and uh, it just wasn't about that. It was like you wanted to do the work. You've contributed so much to the film industry in Canada. You've been involved with many charities and uh, you've helped uh, mentor quite a few young actors. Uh, Babs, I, I have to ask you... Uh, how are you doing? Physically? Yeah. Um, well, you know, you, you, I try not to read the charts. I try not to look too much at paper because uh, on paper, it, it, it's just, it's, you know, it just can be really scary. But, uh, but you know, I feel like I'm kind of a, a miracle. It's kind of a miracle what's happened to me. And for me, and uh, and I actually feel I feel terrific, and uh, you know, I mean, I'm winding down in some ways, and uh, right now I'm in a new chemo, and it really sucks, but it's just that chemo sucks. It's not like I'm complaining. I feel extremely fortunate, and I feel that my life is abundant in ways in ways that it's hard to even define. You know, just that there's so much that's come to me and uh and i'm so lucky some friends of mine put together the babs chula lifeline for artists society to raise money and funds uh for my alternative treatments and for some of the supplies and supplements and things that i need and um and the idea is that once i'm free of this particular uh crisis um we will we will be able to support another artist because this society it turns it turns out that like artists people in my position I'm not my position isn't a unique position like you know artists we've been working our whole lives in this industry and we are just not uh, financially secure in any way we don't have residuals on our work you know like we get bought out so uh, your last day on a film is your last day on a film. For residuals, because there aren't many artists that are that are secure. And when you're hit with something like cancer, or, or you know, or another kind of illness, or an accident, or something, you've got you've probably got three or four months of savings, and then you're just you're you're just up the creek. You know, there's nothing. I happen to be very lucky to know people who are successful in this business, and people like Nick Lee and David Coveney and Callum Rennie, uh, you know, auctioned themselves off for dinners and lunches, and we raised money, and I'm paying for my treatments, and 
I'm being I'm successful at pushing back this cancer, and at some point very soon, uh, I will step aside, and the Babs Chula Lifeline for Artist Society will be able to support another artist. And uh, you can go to that site and find out how you can donate. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And yeah. Thanks for taking the time to do this interview. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for, for, for asking me. I'm really, really pleased that you've asked me. Because now we have to take care of other people, too, you know. And so um, I feel a little pressured to get better quickly. Because um, <laughs> as soon as I do, then, you know, another artist who is, uh, who is uh, marked with illness or accident um, and, is, and finds themselves, you know, spending their life savings in about five minutes, you know, will get, uh, will we'll be able to make use of this organization. And that's really what makes me proud. And I, and that, I want that to be my legacy. You know, that's, that's what I what will remain long beyond me, and, and that's because of you guys. There will be a memorial mass uh, said for Babs on Saturday, May 22nd at 1.30 p.m. at St. Mary's Catholic Church at 5251 Joyce Street. A celebration of the life of Babs Chula will be held on Sunday, May 23rd at 11.30 a.m. at the Arts Club Main Stage Theatre, 1585 Johnson Street, Granville Island in Vancouver. The North by Northeast Music and Film Festival and Conference takes over Toronto once again June 16th to the 20th. North by Northeast showcases the best new music from around the world across dozens of genres. Rock, hip-hop, punk, country, blues, electronica, singer-songwriter, and more. It's your chance to catch breakout performances from tomorrow's stars. Five days, 50 stages, over 600 bands, plus 35 great music-related films, all for only 50 bucks. Wristbands are now on sale. Also available, full festival passes for North by Northeast industry conferences featuring celebrity interviews and networking sessions. North by Northeast Music and Film Festival and Conferences, June 16th to the 20th, taking place in the heart of Toronto, Ontario. Visit www.nxne.com for tickets and up-to-the-minute festival information. Hot off the presses, today, the Vancouver East Cultural Centre has announced its new season of works. For its 2010-2011 season, says the press release, the Cult offers a platform to ask meaningful questions, to stimulate your imagination, tickle your funny bone, and most of all, to share a live experience with other real people. This coming season is full of brilliantly imagined stories that reflect on the big topics of our time. The Cult is not shy about making a statement and has created a season that adds something truly unique to the Vancouver landscape. To name just a few of the highlights, Executive Director Heather Redfern has programmed for this coming season, audiences can expect to enjoy five world premieres, including a multimedia stage adaptation of George Orwell's timeless masterpiece, 1984, a new music arrangement of Stravinsky's Firebird with innovative contemporary choreography, a brand new work by Canadian slam poet master and Olympian Shane Coyzan, and the return of big-time choreographer Crystal Pite with a, a Canadian premiere for Kid Pivot. Uh, 
I spoke with Heather Redfern at her office in the still-glistening, renovated, and remastered Kulch, and we talked about the upcoming season, about the Kulch building and its goals, and about the issues facing the Kulch in the future. Uh, so tell me about some of uh, the highlights. What are some of the highlights for you? I think uh, Dr. Egg and the Man with No Ear is a show that people are really going to uh, find fascinating. It's an interesting title. It is an interesting title, and it actually is very explanatory of the story. And the story is about a guy who has no ear, and he would need uh, to use either his or his daughter's DNA to grow another ear. There's a scientist who said, oh, I can grow you another ear. Well, an attempt is made to grow this ear, and the outcome is not what they expected, and then they have to deal with what they've created. So it's very much a kind of Frankenstein story. Mm. Um, it's beautifully done with puppets, uh, with animation screen, wow. and with live performance. So beautifully um, uh, told story, all mm. those elements all mixed up. And also kind of a genre that I really love, mm. which is the idea of uh, kind of fantasy or animation and or puppetry for adults okay. and, and young adults as opposed to those forms just being thought of as forms for children. Mm-hmm. It's definitely not a children, it's not. not for little children okay. anyway. Young people, yes. Young adults, for sure. Mm-hmm. Teens, all of that, but not for small children. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Peter Panties, which... <laughs> Again, doesn't sound like it's completely for kids. It is definitely not for kids. Uh, it is a wonderful kind of uh, postmodern uh, uh, version of Peter Pan, uh, really just using Peter Pan as a starting point. Uh, to talk about all kinds of uh, different things through the eyes of uh, the two writers, Marcus Yosef and Niles, and then also uh, with songs by Veda Hilly. And this is a Leaky Heaven Circus co-production with New World, so if you've ever seen a Leaky Heaven Circus production, you know it's not going to be straightforward storytelling. <laughs> no, no, and they're doing a streetcar named Desire on... Um Starting today, I think. Yes, that's right, this and week. And it's very outside the box. Exactly. And inside a house. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, we do, uh, we like to do outside the box here. Mm. Now, we are doing one that's in the box, though, that's very exciting, and that is uh, After the Quake, uh, Copro Pie Theatre Rumble. And they did it last year at Studio 16. And it, it's really a marvelous, marvelous production that really needed to have an opportunity to have a larger audience. So we're really happy to open the season with that one. Great. What is it? It's Murakami. Do you know him? I don't. He's a writer, a Japanese writer, who's very popular with a kind of a young, hip kind of crowd. And uh, it's an interpretation of one of his one of his stories. Mm, okay. And so it uh, he what he does is he kind of writes about reality and fantasy worlds they're very parallel worlds. Okay. So, you know, the character of the frog is just as real and present mm. as the character of the child, yeah. for example. So, it's uh, it's it's very it's very magical and mystical, sort of also very grounded in in reality. Mm. So, there's lots of that kind of uh, work this year. Now, you said you know you like to do you like to go outside the box, and uh, in the press release it says the culture is not shy about making a statement mm-hmm. and has created a season that adds something truly unique to the Vancouver landscape. Right. So, from your point of view, what is <laughs> what is it that the culture does or wants to do that nobody else does in Vancouver? Well, first of all, I think that our mandate 
in, because our mandate includes bringing in international and uh, work and work from other parts of Canada, we are fairly unique. There uh, aren't a lot of companies that, that have that in their mandate. So we're able to find some work that might be very different from what uh, local artists are producing. We love what local artists do, but we have a lot of opportunity to see that work. And those artists are of a national and international caliber, but it's also very interesting to, to see what people are doing in the rest of the country and in other parts of the world as well. So I think that that really makes us unique. Also, we don't produce our own work, we only present work. So uh, we have the opportunity to really uh, look at what's out there and pick the work that has the edge, mm -hmm. that takes the risks that we are interested in. Okay. seeing being taken and in terms of programming you know you, you have that in your mandate to have international works what are some what else is in the recipe book for for putting together for programming for uh, a season you know you have a splash of, of theater you've got dance international works music and uh, family work as well mm. shows for young people and children and I think that uh, what I say is we don't have one culture audience. Okay. We have an audience for each piece that we bring in. And so it is a very eclectic program. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, it has a sensibility around it that is very different from Board on the Beach or the Arts Club or the Playhouse. It, mm -hmm. it, it, it tends to live its young work, its, its, its vigorous work. Uh, quite often it can be flawed work. When, when you're, we're doing uh, a lot more premiering of work mm -hmm. this year and last year. And, uh, and, and, and work is never, it never springs on opening night fully formed, sure. right? Mm -hmm. So you get to see the diamonds in the rough here too, which I really love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm a great believer in touring in second and third productions because that's when you get the polish. That, and so we have a mix of, of the work with the polish and a mix of the work that's probably going to have some, some rough edges, but mm -hmm. will ultimately be fantastic. Do you think that's true of Vancouver audiences, that there isn't, there, there isn't one, you know, or, or, or two or three, you know, big audiences that it's sort of, you've got sort of a dozen different small groups. Is that, is that accurate of the Vancouver scene? Um, I would say yes and no. How's that for, okay. <laughs> for a sitting on the fence answer? Yeah. I think that you'll see a lot of overlap between the big organizations. So between the Arts Club, the Opera, Bart on the Beach, I think you'll see a, that that has a fairly similar audience base. I think, though, when we get into the smaller uh, companies and the smaller venues that you actually see a much more diverse audience base. Mm. I wanted to ask about uh, the building. Speaking of, of, of community, um, it says in, in, in that article, I think, the one you have behind you, that um, the goal of the, the new building is to function more as a sort of arts center, you know, community right. center, and, and to even have uh, book clubs and things like that. Yeah. How's that going? It's going well. Uh, we opened our little cafe wine bar in January, and that's just such a great little space for about 20, 25 people. And, uh, you know, uh, that has brought a whole other element into the building. I've just come back from the UK where I've looked at four or five different venues there to see what models they're using to animate their spaces. And uh, one of the things that I've come back with that I'm very clear about is we need to find ways 
ways to use the space during the day more. We need to find ways of actually stacking shows, especially on Friday and Saturday nights. So maybe there's, you know, a, a 7 o'clock curtain, a 9 o'clock curtain, uh -huh. and then a late night show potentially even. Uh -huh. um, we're already doing a lot of that next year in terms of each of our shows has some kind of an outreach element to it. So, for example, the Christmas Carol Project, we're going to be showing um, the Alistair Sims black and white version of, of uh, Scrooge uh, before that show. Not not on the same night, but a yeah. few days before. And we're going to do a little anime festival before after the quake. And so we're going to be doing workshops uh, two days for the two days preceding the performances of Old Thomas and the Little Fairy mm -hmm. with the company mm -hmm. um, for children, adults, and uh, and uh, pre-professionals. So, so we are really trying to... Um, to make sure that it's not just about the performance, that there are things that we're building around it. Mm -hmm. Also, the other thing we're doing is the little uh, Van City Culture Lab. Yeah, uh, so we are providing space for residencies uh, for various companies next year, uh, including 605 Collective, uh, Theatre Replacement with Dress Me Up In Your Love, Fish Face will have a residency, After the Quake will have a residency. So these are our ways of, we don't have money to give companies to help them develop their work, but we can give them some space mm -hmm. to do it. And, and space is expensive and hard to find in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. So it, it is a very valuable resource mm -hmm. uh, that we right now are really just doing for free. Mm. So, uh, really, just to benefit uh, the community here. And so that sounds like that sounds like a, a big goal of this of this facility is to, like you say, keep it animated. Is that is that right? Just to keep keep the life uh, from day to night, from one audience to another. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And have people coming and going. Like, this week is so exciting. We have Youth Week mm -hmm. this week, and the building is just filled with uh, young people. You know, literally from kind of three o'clock until the wee hours, all just doing great stuff. There's a gallery. There's some installation pieces. There's a box you can crawl in and put the headphones on. That's really cool. I suggest you do it. It's in the lobby. Okay. There's a tent set up in the breezeway. There's uh, you know three or four shows going on at both theaters. It's just it's craziness, and it's great. It, it it's it's energetic. There's a great buzz to it. Um, tell me about. Uh, the challenges as you arrive at your desk every morning. What money, are... money, money, money. <laughs> Is it? It's, all, the it's one. always money. Yeah. You know, I have a friend who said to me once, you know, in this business, you know, you can deal with just about anything, but the thing that, the only thing that keeps you awake at night is money mm. or so lack are, of it. So, yeah, so the arts cuts, that must have been. It's, uh, huge. yeah, it's, it's huge. It's, it's huge to the entire community. It touches us in lots of ways, not just in terms of our own budget, but in terms of. The ability for uh, other companies to rent our space to do their shows here, and that is a really important revenue stream for us. Um, we've certainly lost shows, uh, uh, people who had booked space for this year and who uh, are not able to do the shows next year that they were planning to do. So it does ha have an enormous impact, and it's a, it's a ripple effect. It's not just, oh, well, we're this much short this year. So I think... We'll see a lot of companies, including ourselves, uh, facing deficits uh, in the next year or two, and uh, that's really difficult. Uh, we've also seen, as I say, we've had the triple whammy because we've seen that the Vanox sponsorship has now obviously ended, but we've also seen uh, lower 
funding from foundations who have less money to give out and a real tightening of the belt from the corporate sector. And, and we have not seen those corporate sponsorship dollars that were here for the Olympics translate into anything local, mm. uh, which is too bad. Yeah. It's a sorry comment on the state of corporate affairs, I have to say. <laughs> So, is the college going to survive? Oh, yeah. For sure we are. I mean, first of all, we're just really good at what we do. And secondly, it's really important and a really important um, uh, facility for the community here. For not just East Vancouver, um, our audiences come from all over the place. North Van, Burnaby, the West Side, downtown, mm -hmm. all, over, all over the city. Um, uh, it, it, it is unique in the country. Uh, and it's, I think, loved by uh, the people that come here. So, and and we are providing really essential programs for youth as well. Um, so, I, 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 yeah, we'll survive. Sure, we will. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Thanks very much for speaking with me. Thank you. It's nice to meet you. You too. Can you can you hear how busy it was over at the college with all the the doors opening and closing? I mean, and can you blame them with a whole new season? You know, there's no time to waste. That there's, there's lots to do. Um, and the new season starts up in a few months. But next week, there's a great show coming to the Colch. It's called Mump and Smoot, and it's coming next Wednesday. After an eight-year hiatus, the famed clown Canadian clown duo, created and performed by Michael Kennard and John Turner, return to the Colch with a new work that promises to liberate Vancouver audiences into the giddy, scary world of pure imagination. The duo will once again turn conventional clowning on its head in this darkly humorous new work that ranges from zany to macabre, not for children. Mump and Smoot have performed and taught across the globe and have garnered awards, including two Dora Maver Moore Awards for Outstanding Production and Direction, as well as a Canadian Comedy Award, a Boston Theatre Award, and a Drama Log Award. It starts next Wednesday, May 26th, and runs till the 29th, and again from June 1st to the 5th. There is a Pay What You Can show on May 27th and a post-show artist talkback on May the 28th. The shows begin at 8 p.m., but there are uh, there is one matinee on May 30th at uh, 4 p.m., and this is, of course, at the Colch on the corner of Venables and uh, Victoria. Street in Vancouver, and tickets range from $27 to $45. You can get them by phone, get your pen, or on the web at tickets.thecolch.com. The phone number is 604-251-1363. You're listening to The Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. The Seed Productions Foundation is proud to present An Evening with Deepak Chopra. On the heels of two new releases, the New York Times best-selling author Deepak Chopra will bring his message of well-being to Vancouver on June the 4th. Dr. Chopra is acknowledged as one of the world's leaders in mind-body medicine and has been described as the poet-prophet of alternative medicine. He will talk about his latest works, Reinventing the Body, Resurrecting the Soul, How to Create a New You, and the ultimate happiness prescription, the seven keys to joy and enlightenment. An evening with Deepak Chopra at the Queen Elizabeth Theatre, Friday, June 4th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets online at ticketmaster.ca.
And when you experience that, you'll be extremely ecstatic. You'll be extremely joyful because this is the real you. And that equals nirvana. Wow, that, that ad for Deepak Chopra really came on strong. It's like, duh, Deepak Chopra. Um, I'm sorry if anyone's ears were, were hurt there. I do apologize. Uh, tonight, the Firehall Arts Center is having a fundraiser dinner. But they're also honoring five individuals they feel deserve admiration and celebration. They include longtime arts patron, community builder, and former Carnegie Community Center Executive Director Michael Clegg, well-known actor, writer, director, and former Fire Hall board member Dennis Simpson, longtime patron and financial consultant for the Fire Hall, Abdul Alibi, and retired businessman, longtime patron, and a respected translator of plays such as The Ecstasy of Rita Joe, Blood Relatives, The Tomorrow Box, and Urine Town the Musical into Japanese, Toyoshi Yoshihara, and award-winning choreographer and founding board member of the Dance Center, whose work has been seen on the Fire Hall stage, Grant Stratty. I spoke with, with him about the honor he's receiving. He actually started out as a lawyer before going into the arts and since then has become a much-loved and respected teacher and mentor as well as an arts administrator of very high esteem. Here's my conversation with Grant Stratty. Congratulations on um, the honor you're receiving from the Fire Hall. Uh, I'm curious, what reasons did, uh, did they give you uh, specifically about, um, about the honor? I think it's because I've always been a supporter of the uh, fire hall, you know, and um, I've been very active, in, particularly in dance. And uh, I was at um, when I first came here to be the director of the Center for the Arts at SFU, and it was a few years after that that she started the the, the whole fire hall theater. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, from th- at that time. Uh, I came here. Theater was um, burgeoning in terms of its being different and developing, and dance was less so at that time. <clears throat> but um, very quickly, that all changed, and she had a lot to do with helping all of the, all of the emerging dancers and choreographers of the town. And do you think that that it has changed? Has there been a resurgence? Oh dance? yes. It, I think, in fact, I'm a little bit prejudiced, but I think hmm. the, the dance field is certain burgeoned beyond the theater field uh, in the last few years. I'm but curious about dance uh, in Vancouver. What? Um, how would you describe uh, the scene relative to, to, to other cities? What, um, what can be said about Vancouver's dancing? Well, you know, uh, Canada is very regional in the way it's developed, and uh, Quebec was the first to really become, you know, become leaders of the uh, of the m- modern contemporary set of, of dance, um, and Toronto was has been always quite stable, but Vancouver in the last ten years, and I think people have agreed, has really um, getting a lot of attention. It's uh, it has a lot of um, a lot of activity in dance compared to when I came here in 1980. Uh, a lot of successful companies, a lot, of course, are burgeoning. Some are burgeoning and the others are struggling. Mm-hmm. 
and that's true of the whole field. Um, Dana, I think, has been very special in that she has been looking, looking at talent and then giving them a chance. Yeah. And, you know, the, the emerging group really, really developed a lot because of her hmm. and what the organization did there. At the fire hall? The fire hall, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I mean, there's so many artists now, choreographers particularly, who got their first start there. And at the time that I was at um, SFU, my field was still dance, but there were a lot of young people came out, and they, for their first things that they presented, apart from being at the university, would be at the fire hall. Mm. Um, and I, I'm very grateful for that and for what developed as a result of that. So you're very proud of, of what the fire has, has accomplished? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think there's another thing, you know, quite mm-hmm. apart from the, 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 the theatrical arts, is the, Donna's social values mm. and the fact that she's in the fire hall, which is in Vancouver East Side, which is, a, a, you know, it's, it's not a, a great territory. Mm. I, that's by choice. I'm sure, and it's it's done a great deal to in that particular area. Mm-hmm. To but quite apart from that, and in Vancouver and internationally as well. You're you're well known as um, as an administrator, and I'm I'm curious what what is the key to good administration, uh, particularly of an arts organization. Well, first of all, you have to have a certain art sensitivity and, an, and a deep interest in it. It's not just a, a mathematical thing. <laughs> that helps, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, but it, it, they have to be very dedicated to the field and take the lumps along with the advantages you know, that goes with that. I heard a, a story about uh, the choreographer Gillian Lin, where at a young age she was almost uh, she diagnosed with a learning disability because she couldn't sit still. And finally, they discovered that she was a dancer, that she simply communicated through movement and needed movement. And I'm curious about you. What, what were the circumstances that led you to become a dancer and a choreographer and get into that field? Well, let's get goes way back. You know, <laughs> first of all, I have a law degree from the University of Alberta. Hmm. And, uh, but beyond, before that, I remember the age of seven, I was taking cap dancing lessons at Edmonton. Um, uh, because my father, to keep, to keep the wolf from the door, was selling vacuum cleaners door to door. And uh, he sold the vacuum cleaner to a tap dancing teacher who couldn't pay for it. <laughs> so oh. my sister and I had tap dancing lessons. I see. And from that, that point, and also we lived in Cardstown, Alberta, where there were two dances a week. So social dancing was something that I was very much into. So when I went to the university, and I also got involved in the drama club and the dance club and everything else, um, and as soon as I had my degree and, and I was actually admitted to the bar, I was invited to be the, one of the first dancers of the National Ballet of Canada. And then I was there for 20 years as soloist and as resident choreographer. And then I started the dance program at York University, which was the first degree-granting program in Canada. 
And 10 years later, I was invited to come here to SFU. So my field has always been in, um, in dance, but, but when you sp- talk about organization and you talk about administration, mm-hmm. I appreciate the fact that I actually had an education because I, that helped me a great deal in terms of uh, administrating as well as, as, you know, thinking in a different way than just moving your legs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, was, that, that was my, my background. So it was... I'm, I'm still teaching ballet at the age of 82, so uh-huh. there you are. <laughs> I'm just curious about, you know, arts education in, in general. Do you, do you think there's, there's something lacking in the way we, we teach our kids the arts? I think what's lacking is in the government, mm-hmm. not in the education. In there are many places funding and sort of the direction at, at yeah, the top. for funding particularly, mm-hmm. because now in, in in tough times which we're undergoing, they say, okay, should we give money to the arts or an arts education, or should we take it away from that and give it to people who are starving in the street? These are hard questions yes. to, to deal with. But in, in fact, our culture and our, our art forms are really uh, indicates who we are. I mean, Vancouver is different than Toronto, and Toronto is different than Montreal. Uh, we're regional in Canada, particularly in Canada, the way we think and the way we respond to cultural things. And you think the arts is a, is a way to express those? Yeah, a very important one. Mm-hmm. And you, so you think we need more of that, or at least at least more of an understanding of, of its importance when it comes to, to trimming budgets and things like that? Yeah, that, that's, that's absolutely true. I mean, I think that particularly in dance, at a certain point, you, you have to stop dancing. So a lot of people get trapped because they're, they, they only know about what they do, mm-hmm. and they don't have many skills uh, outside of that. Mm-hmm. So we, we've always... That's why I was fairly comfortable in the university setting, because they were getting a, a thorough education as well as an education in the arts. Mm. Uh, in terms of uh, teaching, you've said, and, I, and I'll quote you here, I think that in teaching the best information is that which is discovered. So a teacher should set up a situation where their students must solve the problem, although they can help them do it. The responsibility is both ways. It's not to paste learning on them. It's to bring it out of them. Uh, and also as a choreographer, you know, you don't say, this is what I want, and I want this, and this is... You also have to know what they can do and, and what's in them. It's like um, Michelangelo looking at the marble before he starts to chip it. <laughs> <laughs> it isn't... But, the, you know, so many people, um, and, you know, there, there are different levels of these people. There are good people, there are not bad people, there are some bad people. But I think the ones that are, are not effective are the ones that says, this is what I want, and I want you to give it to me. I'm not giving anything to you. So you need a dialogue. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you very much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. Okay. And congratulations again. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. So the fundraiser is tonight uh, at the Flota Seafood Restaurant at 180 Kiefer Street, and it starts in 40 minutes. So when the art support is over, wait till, wait till it's over, you should proceed to the fire hall and tickets for the dinner are $75 uh, with a tax donation, or sorry, with a tax receipt 
uh, for fifty dollars uh, being given out, or six hundred dollars for a table of ten. Tax donation receipt for three hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, all right. Oh, by the way, you should also go to the Fire Hall uh, website. It's firehallartscenter.ca and get info on some of the things they're having, uh, some of the events they're putting on, including BC Buds, which is coming very soon. Now, uh, in Leslie, My Name is Evil, a new film that starts on Friday, Perry, a sheltered chemist, falls in love with Leslie, a former homecoming princess, when he is selected to be a jury member at her hippie death cult murder trial. When Perry and Leslie lock eyes in court, Perry is is focused to confront the deepest, darkest parts of himself. The director, Reginald Harkema, has directed four feature films. His first feature, A Girl is a Girl, debuted at the 1999 Toronto International Film Festival. His second film, Better Off in Bed, is a seldom-seen rock documentary featuring the new pornographers, which was suppressed from release by Nico Case. Reg's third feature film, Monkey Warfare, which he wrote and directed, won the Special Jury Award at the 2006 Toronto International Film Festival, as well as the Special Jury Prize at the 2007 Boston Independent Film Festival, and Best Narrative Feature at the 2007 Arizona International Film Festival. He spoke with me via telephone from Toronto, and we're going to hear that right now. The film deals with uh, a cult leader and, uh, and his minions and uh, the murder of, of an actress and there's obviously a lot of um, connections to the Manson family and the murder of Sharon Tate and so I wonder, but, but they're not directly um, you know, connected in the film, so I wonder to what extent did you want to make this uh, a historical film? Not to get all film school nerdy on you, but that throws into question how you define a historical film. I mean, if you're thinking like a realistic biopic, that was never the intention. Right. I mean, my research about the Manson family, um, I, I realized that, uh, you know, the whole helter-skelter thing was basically kind of a, a story kind of con- constructed by the prosecutor to uh, convict uh, uh, the Mansons. And, uh, you know, thank God, right? I'm not advocating for the Manson family mm-hmm. in, in Anyway, but uh, it didn't really speak to what the whole uh, uh, um, uh, truth of the uh, uh, um, matter was, um, and uh, so you know this whole idea of like looking for uh, tr- truth in in an event like that. I thought it was just very kind of uh, prickly because I felt like the truth that I had read from uh, uh, all the research was that it was actually just kind of a big sort of weird comedy of errors. And so I decided to approach the thing as if it was like a comedy of errors, like an Aklef, Roman Aklef uh, adaptation, like almost like a, uh, uh, you know, just, just for the first names of the, the people and right. no, no last names, almost like it was like a, a uh, parlor romance comedy. <laughs> uh, I see. So underneath that, underneath the, the, the plot of, uh, of the film, what, what is it really about? Like you say, there are things in the, in the synopsis about uh, how society defines evil. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, the, the, I, w- early on in my research, uh, um, I, I picked up a uh, Life magazine uh, um, with uh, Manson on the cover, that, the, the most famous Manson picture, you know, the one with the, he's on acid, he's got the acid fascist eyes, and it's all black with his hair in the, in the, in the background. And, you know, just, just picked that out, out of, for, for 
Manson research, and then flipping through it, there was like uh, two pages of uh, readers' uh, reactions to the uh, My Lai Massacre story that had broken and uh, was uh, uh, um, splashed all over Life magazine uh, the week earlier in the uh, previous issue. And, and I was like, wow, you know, the My Lai Massacre and the whole Manson thing broke right about the same time, and the Manson thing happened a week later, and it was seemed to me that it was a real convenient bogeyman to take the heat off of uh, the establishment uh, and their uh, um, uh, efforts uh, to support the uh, uh, Vietnam War. Um, and uh, eventually someone like Leslie Van Houten, who the, uh, the, the, the film is ostensibly about, who, who may or may not have even killed anyone, um, and was this like kind of a sweet cheerleader chick from a suburban uh, um, L.A. home, uh, got sentenced to death, whereas uh, the guy, Lieutenant Kelly, the guy of the Mili uh, Me Lai Massacre, the only guy who went on trial, who systematically put uh, a gun to the head of uh, women and children, uh, about a couple dozen in Me Lai, uh, uh, walked like two <laughs> years after uh, um, he was convicted. He uh, more or less got uh, uh, writ of habeas corpus that uh, rumors have it uh, Richard Nixon actually uh, pushed through. And I was just like, well, you know, who's engaged in the more evil act here? You know, the evil Manson girl or the uh, all-American soldier boy? And it just made me uh, think about how we as a society actually uh, define evil. Yeah, I want to ask about, about that, about uh, society. You have Nixon, you have the Vietnam War, you've got hippies. Is, is this still current? Is this um, commenting about today's society or just the society of, of the 60s and 70s? Well, I think uh, you know it, it uh, is very much about uh, uh, today's society. You know, my I, my girlfriend of ten years is American, and uh, every Christmas we go down to uh, Tennessee and have Christmas with her uh, Southern uh, Republican doctor father. <laughs> and uh, on the other Christmases, uh, we'll go to uh, Olympia, where her mother's family is, and have uh, um, Christmas with a bunch of dope smoking lesbians. <laughs> you know, so the. Cultural divide in America is like strongly demarcated right in front of me, and uh, um, it's actually, in many ways, kind of gotten worse since the the 60s. What with you know a black president who's a socialist uh, versus the uh, Tea Partiers. Mm. You know, the only thing we don't have is, that the 60s had is like an unpopular war and people in the streets to exacerbate the situation. I mean, the wars that America's fighting now are, you know, you see the quotes going around this popular and. No one's really agitating them in the streets at the level they were in the 60s. Is this, a, is this an agitation? has very much to say about Canada as well. I mean, yeah. the American flag in there is about the flag, not about it being an American flag. Uh -huh. it, to me, that American flag in the courtroom is saying as much about uh, Stephen Harper waving a Canadian flag at a Calgary Flames playoff game as it is about the American. Would you go so far as to say that, that society committed the murders? No, no, not at all. I mean, the murders were committed on society, but society commits other murders by indoctrinating the same people who murdered right. them in the same fashion. T tell me more about the, the music in the film. It seems like it has a very close relationship to, you know, the story and your sort of visioning of the film is, is the music. Yeah, well, I mean, like I say, you know, when I get to, I was doing the research and thinking about the whole uh, uh, film idea, I mean, it started, you know, from ground zero from that Pink Mountain stop that, that started ground zero from that Pink Mountaintop song uh, uh, that plays in our opening credits, Leslie, with its kind of chorus that goes, My Name is Evil, which, which actually goes, My Name Isn't Eva, but he <laughs> slurs it in such a way that I, I thought it was My Name is Evil. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, um, with that song playing and doing the research, just start grabbing other records out of my record collection, right? It's like not a stretch to... Uh, uh I mean, a you're you're like you're doing a Manson family thing, but there's no way on uh, on a Canadian film like this you're going to afford to get like Helter Skelter by the Beatles. Hmm. But uh, you know who else was doing uh, crazy apocalyptic psych music in the '60s? Thirteen Floor Elevators. <laughs> Absolutely, you know. I mean, it's one thing to be a hippie in San Francisco in '67. Try doing that shit in uh, Texas in '66, right? right. And so you. Ex- start grabbing all those records out and, you know, kind of start piling together in a, a CD, and as I'm like, writing the script, I'm thinking about certain songs that are going to fit into uh, certain montages, and the CD starts whittling down, and then as the cut happens, you know, your producer's like, yeah, we'd like to get more music in there, so you go back to the CD and you start grabbing other songs that uh, uh, you, you hadn't specifically shot the movie with in mind, but start layering them into scenes. And then uh, a friend of mine who's like a record collector and who's, you know, the, the, the god of uh, fucking psych rock, Paul Cahayas, mm-hmm. um, there's actually uh, parts of the character, of my main character in my last film, uh, some of his dialogue I ripped off from my friendship with Paul. But uh, he's a, a uber psych musician, and I just started throwing little things at him. I, you know, I, I was doing like the mythology of the Manson family, so I didn't really want to get any of Charlie's songs, but I wanted to have a song that would kind of evoke Charlie. So I had Paul write that, and I really loved what he came up with, and he had me write the lyrics, so that seemed to click, and you know, a couple other songs, and then I started throwing little underscore things at him, and uh, after a while, he ended up just doing the whole score of uh, the movie. I have to ask you about one thing. It says that your second film is a seldom-seen rock documentary featuring the new pornographers, which was suppressed from release by Nico Case. What is that yeah. about? Yeah, what do you want to know about it? <laughs> Why was it suppressed by Nico Case? Well, you know, I mean, uh, um, I, I originally uh, got the idea to make the movie when uh, like, I found a copy of Cocksucker Blues, that band Rolling Stones documentary at a garage sale, and I was just sort of enthralled by the editing of that movie and got really excited about doing a rock documentary. And then I found out that uh, friends of mine you know, were, in this, were in this band called The Gay and other friends of mine and the new pornographers, because you know, my, my girlfriend of like 10 years used to be Carl Newman's ex-wife, and, or is Carl Newman's ex-wife, used to be Carl Newman's <laughs> Uh, um, and so it's all sort of friends, and I found out they were all going on tour together, and three of the girls in the gay were dating three of the guys in uh, The New Pornographers. So I thought, wow, fuck, man, there's an idea for a movie. <laughs> um, you know, and I had, like, some com- phone conversations with Nico Case, and she was like, I don't want to be part of this movie at all. I don't want you following me around off stage. You know, I don't mind if, like, I'm part of the concert sequences. I don't want to follow you around. I was like, oh, you know, that's fine. I'm about to couples, right? I'm not interested. I'm probably I'm not going to follow you around. So is it and available? Then, you know, because of band politics and her manager and all that, she got up in my grill for about 15 minutes screaming on me at the phone after the tour and threatened to sue me and forced the new pornographers not to uh, sign any release forms and just basically killed the project. And I went and finished it, you know, because, I mean, I just do these things so I can hang out in the editing room. That's my life. That's what I love to do. And uh, we finished it and, you know, showed it at an art gallery or two, but uh, weren't, you know, there was no way we were going to ever uh, release it. And it sort of sits on my shelf at home for anyone who kind of runs into me at Parkdale. Part of the issues, the band was a little bit uh, uncomfortable of how sort of close and personal and intimate I got into their sort of relationships in their lives. And so for a new pornographer's fanatic, it'd be kind of a fascinating document. But, you know, it's unfortunate they'll probably never see it.
Hmm. So if they want a copy, they should find you directly. Yeah, they got to find me directly. <laughs> all right, great. Thanks so much or, for speaking Or, with you me. know, I mean, I, I'm all for the Facebook campaign uh, to have people <laughs> uh, let uh, everyone sign the release forms. <laughs> there you go. Great. Thanks a lot for speaking to me about the film. Okay. Th- thank you. I used to be a member of CITR, so it's always exciting to uh, get my name back into Discord and all that. So the film opens on Friday in Vancouver. It's playing at Tinseltown on 88 West Pender Street. That's all we have for today's show. Before I go, a reminder that A Streetcar Named Desire starts tonight. Leaky Heaven Circus has adapted the Tennessee Williams Classic to East Vancouver with the whole show taking place inside a small house just off Commercial Drive with us in the audience, or sorry, us the audience, watching it through the windows. Go to leakyheaven.com for tickets and information. I believe they are $22 and it starts at 9 p.m. tonight until... Saturday. Thanks for listening. Till next week. Bye bye. You're listening to CITR 101.9 FM. Real to Real is next. Strength, dignity, respect, beauty, self worth, safety, confidence, choice, hope. The Beauty Night Society is a registered charity dedicated to helping marginalized women introduce trust, hope, and self-esteem into their lives. This is the first day of Through its popular makeover program, the Beauty Night Society has touched the lives of thousands and reintroduced a healthy touch to the lives of vulnerable women throughout British Columbia, creating real life makeovers. Please visit www.beautynight.org for information on programs and on how to help. Beauty night, because, because dignity, dignity is beautiful. I think I was blind before I met you. Hi everyone, welcome to Real Drill at the Movies. Robert Waldman, back in action. Lots of new movies to talk about today. Going to begin by looking at a chiller, Nightmare on Elm Street, or to be more precise, A Nightmare on Elm Street. Bedtime 